It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's episode three of The Wheelhouse. Aaron Goldsmith alongside Jerry DePoto. Jerry, this has been, it's been pretty successful so far. There have been people, Jerry, who have been saying that this is a good podcast. Have they been, have they been saying this to you? Have they been especially impressed with the questions I've asked you? Uh, I don't know. No one has mentioned. Oh come to on! Me. Uh, there, there, I do a podcast at home every night with <laughs> with my wife. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law will occasionally listen, but but uh, overall, I've really the, the feedback I've received internally has been great. Uh, just reading through some of what the, has been written, I, I think, is fascinating, and, and I'm glad people are enjoying it. I, as you, as you figured out, I, I don't mind talking. <laughs> well, we like that about you. You know, but Jerry, in all seriousness, like to talk to the listener for a second, we really appreciate all the feedback, uh, all the positive feedback, and through social media and in person, and it's been a lot of fun for Jerry, myself, for Colin as well, Kevin Martinez, and there's plenty of ways for you to subscribe through the iTunes store, through the podcast app as well and for all you android listeners you know you might be small but you're mighty and you might be you might not be small actually there's a lot of android users Uh, we are working diligently by we i mean colin uh we are finding a way to get you this podcast in a more uh, digestible form in the meantime though you can use the rss feed by going to mariners.com slash wheelhouse you can plug that in and uh, that should be able to work for you so um we'll move on to the guy here i thought he'd be here Where's Otani? I mean, when I texted you last night and said, well, we have Otani, and you didn't respond, I interpreted that as absolutely. I, I think I have a meeting. <laughs> Is uh, your phone buzzing? There's, there, yeah, was that a call from me? <laughs> were, were you talking to me? I, I, I don't know if I understood the question. Can you repeat, please? Well, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that uh, you've uh, publicly made so much comments about your time in Los Angeles, how great it was, and how optimistic everything is, right? Uh, these these Aaron are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, we have uh, obviously you know in this in this particular case it's a it's a fantastic story, but we have committed to just buttoning our lip and and moving on, putting our head down and 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 hoping for the best. Well, we will uh, eagerly anticipate what news you can share, as we know from previous episodes when there are things that you can talk about, you're very willing to talk about them. So we know that this is obviously a, a matter of a high a Mariner's security that we'll uh, stay away from for the time being. But I'm sure in a wheelhouse episode uh, forthcoming, there will be more to discuss. I, I think there will. I, you know, at the end of the day, I think you just you just painted a picture of me sitting in my office, and I, I feel like there's a DEFCON button, a red button <laughs> under a hood that is, uh, that's ready to hit. We, we've, reached, we've reached DEFCON 9 and information protection. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Good way to put it. Well, we have a lot, lot to cover here, and I know we can kind of look ahead to the future for a brief moment and look into the winter meetings, which are coming up on the horizon. I think for a lot of people, for a lot of fans, when we think of the winter meetings, we think about flipping on MLB Net, and it's uh, the, the, the set is set up there, and 
all the poinsettias are there and all the GMs and managers are walking across and you're always there on set with those guys as well. It seems like it's a time of a lot of hustle and bustle. Can you tell us what is the what are the winter meetings like for you as a general manager? In one word, congestion. Uh, it is a it's a fantastic event. Truly, it's a it's. I think MLB and and uh, our partners uh, in and around MLB have talked about the idea that the winter meetings have turned into the most hit on uh, episode or or time for Major League Baseball outside of active games. So through our off season, our fans are more engaged during the winter meetings waiting to see what will happen with trades, waiting to see what will happen with potential free agent signings. The drama, so to speak, is is more heightened during the winter meetings than at any other point of the year. And and uh, I have some wonderful memories of winter <laughs> meetings past, uh, you know, some that are fun, some that were more engaging. And, and what I love most about it is that we are traveling with a group of about 20 from our Mariners family, some of whom work satellite and we don't see every day. So we get we get trapped in a suite at a at a hotel room and generally do not leave that suite for the better part of four days and and it's brainstorming it's a think tank we will visit with other teams with with agents uh, we'll throw up a whiteboard and just scratch out ideas uh, as I mentioned to Colin when we first sat down we're going to come up with seventy ideas that we would never dream of doing and and uh, another thirty that we would love to do and the other team would not dream of doing. And, <laughs> And we'll we'll ballpark the cost of free agents, only to find out that we were about thirty three percent correct. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you talk about ideas and brainstorming and seventy different ideas, et cetera, I mean, is this these are all transactional moves that have bec- that become easier to discuss because you're simply in the same hotel with twenty nine other general managers. It's a, just kind of a logistics thing. That's correct. You know, to, to and to an extent, I get no sleep because I spend most of my time w- with my ear on a glass pressed up against the wall, <laughs> trying to figure out what the team next door is going to do. Uh, no, we we have we have done uh, we do a, a fair bit of, of recon before we get to the meetings. Once you're there and you have the ability to meet face to face, you can get so much more done face to face in any world than you can via text, via phone call, etc. But the information age has really done a lot for us. So by the time we meet face to face, we're probably having the third or fourth iteration of a discussion, whether it be about a trade or sitting down with a potential free agent. And now we may already be in the red zone in our ability to push something across rather than waiting to see if it'll come together. I think one of the fun things about this podcast is we can use this as a platform to kind of discuss some things that some terms, and I'm sure this is true in every sport, but I feel like it's more so in baseball, terms like the Rule 5 draft, right, where even probably the average Mariners fan has heard that all the time. But I don't know as if if you put a pen in a Mariners fan hand and put a piece of paper down and you said, write down what the Rule 5 draft is, I don't know how many people could actually do it. So with that in mind, can you tell us what goes down at the Rule 5 draft and what it's all about? I I don't know. I'm usually on a plane headed back to home. (laughs) No, in reality, the Rule 5 draft is one of the – it's really an age-old process in baseball that dates back to the 1950s. We have a 40-man roster. We are, we are able to protect 40 of our players. At any given time, the Mariners have a roughly 220, 230 players in our organization. And that runs from the Dominican Summer League on through the Major League Club. We are allowed to protect 40 of them. You are eligible for protection three years after your draft as a college player or four as a high school player, roughly. And that's just ballparking. Based on age, some players could be different. But that's a general ballpark. 
So once you are placed on the 40-man roster, now your, your options clock starts to tick. That's when you, you have read about the three options up and down from the minor leagues. So it's defining the amount of time that a team can protect their players. And you know, the Rule 5 draft is held for the, the players not protected on the 40-man roster but have already exceeded their, their minor league, effectively the eligibility or the, the exception uh, to, the, to the Rule 5 draft. So once you've achieved three to four years of minor league service and you've not been added to the major league roster, you are eligible for the Rule 5 draft. There's going to be hundreds of players available in the Rule 5 draft. There's only going to be a handful that are actually selected. And of that handful, in order to maintain rights for the player, and I'll give you an example, and this dates back to the early 2000s, Johan Santana is a Rule 5 draft pick who played in the Midwest League at the A level for the Houston Astros, was selected in the Rule 5 draft by the Minnesota Twins, who carried him as a mostly reliever, sometimes spot starter, for the entirety of the next season. As long as that player is on your active roster for 90 consecutive days, he is now your property. And in return for so doing, in today's time, you pay a $100,000 fee. So at, at the time of Johan Santana, it was 50000 If you decide not to keep the player, you have to return half of the cost. So the, in this case, the Houston Astros are the benefactor of a, a price paid by the Twins to get Johan Santana. A couple of Cy Young seasons later, it wound up being a really fruitful pick for them. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, that's generally how the Rule 5 works. Roberto Clemente is probably the most famous of all the Rule 5 picks. There's been some wildly productive players uh, that go through the Rule 5, we, we collectively call it the red balloon phase because the Rule 5 draft is about watching a bunch of red balloons go by in a black-and-white movie and every one of the 30 baseball teams start chasing red balloons, <laughs> thinking that's the next, that, that is the next Johan Santana, that's the next Roberto Clemente. But there have been so many good players that come through that you can't help but be interested by the process. And this is kind of the last phase of the meetings, the Rule 5? Yeah, that getaway day is the Rule 5. It's fairly comedic because we, we will hold it in, a, in an NFL draft size room or a similar style uh, or, or similar layout to which you see the, the, the broadcast that occurs on the network, uh, MLB network, for the Major League Draft. And Roy Krasick from MLB will get up and, and MC the affair. And I would say at the start, there are about 500-ish, 400-ish baseball people in attendance, ranging from you know prospect miners and, and bloggers to, to to general managers and executives from around the league, every scouting director from the various international amateur professional departments, etc., and at least three to five members of each organization sitting at a table uh, that looks like a war room. And we're going to call out about 15 names, most of which are not known by the mainstream. Right. And, and, uh, and everybody's sitting there with suitcases in tow. There's more <laughs> luggage in the room than actual bodies. And by the time we get to the middle of the first round of the, of the Rule 5 draft, the, the 500 or so that were originally in attendance has been whittled down to Roy and his 50 closest friends. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a great event, and there are so many good players that come out of it year over year that we will do our due diligence. You, if you have 40 men already on your roster, you're not allowed to take part. So the fact that we go in this year uh, with 35 on our roster, at least at present, we, we have the ability to, to take part if we'd like. 
Well, to fast forward to our next episode, you will be joining us from the winter meetings, which is very kind of you. So we uh, look forward to our first on location, or at least half of us will be on location. Uh, that'll be episode four. Um, I'm, for the record, I'm already warming up the, you know, the, the Tommy Bahama and the umbrella <laughs> drink. I'm, I'm good to go. I don't know if that's allowed on well, the podcast. We'll let you paint the picture for us when we get to that point. Yeah, so it will be a fairly ugly picture. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you have rounded out your major league coaching roster? This is, I'm fascinated to talk to you about Brian DeLunas, a guy from St. Louis. First of all, before we get too deep into Brian, Let's talk about your philosophy with the bullpen coach, because I think most people who, when they think of a bullpen coach, they think of the shot that we have on TV of the guy holding the clipboard, right, with the hoodie on, saying, hey, Mark, get loose. Uh, That maybe was the bullpen coach of yesteryear, the bullpen coach for the Mariners starting now. This this seems like it's going to be a lot more. So before we talk about Brian, please tell us what it was that you were looking for in a 2018 Mariners bullpen coach. First, a handsome fellow. Uh, <laughs> He's going to be on TV from time to time, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, Brian, what we were looking for, and the way I've qualified Brian, is he's a dot connector. He is able to take a series of dots in, in the pitching world and connect them. And most of my career, or most baseball teams over the course of time, when they have a, a, a bullpen coach, that coach has been more likely to be geared toward catchers, if that makes any sense. Many major league staffs don't have a full-time catching instructor or coordinator. Uh, the bullpen's usually been where the, the catching guy sets up, and, and that has generally been the case. Catchers are usually in tune enough with the pitching, uh, more so uh, than the catching sometimes, but they are usually in tune enough with the pitching that they make for a great bullpen coach. We wanted to put an extra pitching mind in the bullpen, uh, which I don't think makes us exclusive among Major League Baseball teams, but it makes us one of of the few. Uh, We wanted to have three pitching personalities on our team. Mel, uh, as our pitching coach, Jim Brower is going to be able to connect the dots through introducing scouting reports, analytics, and he's got a very different delivery. He's he's animated, he's confident, and and he's got the experience of almost a decade in the big leagues as a pitcher. Brian DeLunas comes to us as some guy from St. Louis. You probably could have just stopped there. <laughs> you know, he's just some guy from St. Louis. And he, uh, Brian brings a very vast background in coaching. That brings from the high school to the college level to coaching the Northwoods League and, and summer collegiate baseball to serving as the, the director for a pitching clinic or a baseball school in, in St. Louis where he took care of any number of, of what we think are high-end major league performers. He has coached along the way Max Scherzer, Kyle Gibson, Nick Tepish, uh, Aaron Crow, others from Univers- University of Missouri fame where he was the pitching coach for a handful of years for the Missouri Tigers. And, and then on to his, his work with professional guys, not the least of which is our own David Phelps, but others around the major leagues who have really seen a step forward. Brian is, is exceptional in his advancement in regard to biomechanics, pitcher, pitcher deliveries. He, he's very biomechanically inclined. He also what does has, that mean, Jerry? He is able to look at a delivery and connect the dots between the time that you launch, keeping your body in the, in the maximum position to deliver a baseball efficiently. And in so doing, he also happens to be a, a, a somewhat of a, far more along the, the lines of an expert than we are in terms of velocity increase or, or velocity building programs. 
And, you know, David Phelps is a great example of what Brian DeLunis is about, is, is he made small adjustments in, in David's delivery that allowed David to be more efficient in how he transitioned the ball from the rubber over the plate. As a result, David saw a pretty significant mm-hmm. velocity spike a few years back and considerable uptick in his command. And, and it took him to a different level. And, and David had nothing but positives to say about Brian. Oddly enough, we found David without we found Brian without knowing that he worked with David. Oh, really? And that only became part of the program later. So we're excited to have him. We think it's unique. He's never coached a day in professional baseball, but he's got a great way about him. He's got a terrific way with players, and he has a ton of experience. just so happens that none of it has happened at the major league or professional level. It's funny hearing you kind of describe biomechanics and knowing that he worked with Scherzer. I've heard stories of Scherzer. Did you ever scout him? Did your paths – Drafted and signed. Of course, uh, yeah. Of course. We were with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and and uh, my actually my first year with the Arizona Diamondbacks. I came in the winter of two thousand five, and our first draft together was Max Scherzer, number one pick, eleventh in the country. That's incredible because I've heard stories of Max in high school, and I don't know how much he went into college as well. With his delivery was so violent that he would lose his ball cap, like his ball cap would fly off. John Pasella, New yeah. York Mets, so early I, '80s. Yes. So I guess like the biomechanics of Scherzer uh, pre DeLunas weren't that great, but maybe they've uh, been ironed out a little bit since the time of working with them. Yeah, you're talking about one of the best pitchers <laughs> in the world. And so much has changed with with Max through the years, and 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 what he does. He was one of the best pitchers in college baseball. He shot through the minor leagues on his way to the big leagues. And uh, I remember sitting in Fort Worth, Texas, watching Max pitch for the Fort Worth Cats. While oh, we indie were, ball, right? Yeah, while we were waiting to see if we were going to be able to bring him in under the wire. Because we actually drafted him in the first round of the 2006 draft and then had to wait till June of uh, May, late May of 2007 before we were able to sign him. And uh, it was it was very interesting. Uh, we we had a we had a, a, a pretty unique relationship with uh, with Max's representatives, and we were able to you know to have a good rhetoric leading into that time. And and he ultimately came back to us. He did sign. Like I said, we started him very quickly. He accelerated through A ball and Double A like a shot, and then was in the big leagues in no time, and truly dominated from the moment he got there. And we introduced him as a bullpen guy, allowed him to start toward the tail end, and then he was part of a, a very large trade. So, sure. you know, Mike Rizzo was the was the scouting director at the time, and and uh, we were we were fortunate enough to have him for that period of time. And he's gone on to a great career. But yeah, Brian's Brian has had his hands on a lot of guys who have had success. Max is just the most famous of them. Reading one of your quotes, and you said something along the same lines just a moment ago about Brian and his role, and I, you said. You see him taking the biomechanical view of a picture, connecting with the analytical view, connecting again with the emotional uh, angle, and then reach players of, to be able to reach players of today's times. And I, all I could think of was Earl Weaver and Whitey Herzog and what they would be saying if they were reading something like that today. I mean, the, bottom line is things have, things are evolving, things have changed, and you are making moves as a result of that to to better utilize, uh, I guess, the player of today's times and the coach that fits them properly. I think that's right. And, and we have made no bones about the fact that we want to be a progressive organization in addressing our players' needs. And, you know, our players, each of our players in today's game have a series of people around them. It, it's a strength coach. It's a private trainer. It is a private pitching coach. 
people that they subscribe to, that they keep in their close circle. You know, we've tried to embrace those people. We've tried to get to understand what makes our player tick in a different way. And in today's game, it's so important to do. So, you know, obviously, whether it's Brian, it's other coaches that we have, have connected with across our, our roster, so to speak, we want to engage with our players in a way that maybe other teams aren't. And it's uh, the, the players we have, they're the best players in the world. And oftentimes they know what they're, what they're capable of and what the right mix is for them. And Brian brings us the unique perspective of of having connected with young players in today's world much, much more recently than many of us have. We're dealing with the polished product. Brian, in recent time, has dealt with teenagers and young 20-somethings understanding how they communicate, how they learn, because they may learn in a very different way than, say, a, a 30-year-old learns in, in today's world. And, and now you get into the, the extremes where you're dealing with, you know, polished Major League All-Star pitchers who've been in the league for 10 years. And, and Brian has a way of reaching each of those demographics because he's worked with all of them. Along those lines, since the last time that we spoke, Kasashi Iwakuma has rejoined the Mariners, a minor league deal. First of all, can you give us some type of update as to if all things go well for Hisashi, when he might be able to physically pitch again? Uh, Kuma, if all goes well for Kuma, our expectation is that he will be in spring training with us. Uh, The goal is that he will be in a throwing program, probably not yet having progressed to the mound. If everything goes well, we expect to see him sometime about the middle of May, you know, and just ballparking, middle of May, end of May, somewhere in that general region. And and so far, all arrows are pointing north. The, the rehab has gone well to date. We're getting very positive response from our medical teams, and we're very encouraged. You know, Kuma works hard. He always has. He's a, he's a wonderful guy. And our goal is that, that whether it is in this capacity or however the, the rest of Kuma's marriage with the Seattle Mariners we want that to be a permanent thing and so his his years as a player we don't feel like are behind him there's still some time for him to go out there and do the things he does and we want him to always be a part of our our family our decision making process and even the way we we pitch he's a, he's got an instinctive nature about how to sequence pitches that most guys just don't have and the more exposure that our pitchers get to kuma uh, even despite what is sometimes a, a language barrier, the, the better off we as an organization are. You know, it's interesting you say that because Scott had made reference a number of times about how Kuma's pitch, variety of pitches, each pitch in and of itself might not be a devastating pitch. However, when you blend those pitches together, the way that he's able to sequence them and work them off one another, suddenly his arsenal becomes much more deadly. You know, the, the key to pitching is to, what you're doing inherently is just deceiving the hitter. If you stand out there and throw a 98-mile-an-hour fastball straight as a string down the middle every pitch, they might foul the first one off. You know, it could be a swing and a miss followed by a foul ball, followed by a loud out, followed by a series of home runs off the upper <laughs> you know, That's just the way the game goes. If, if you continue to do the same thing, they will adjust to you. And, you know, Kuma has a great way of masking his pitches. He can disguise pitches by making them look like the pitch before. And that, that's a great skill. You know, we, we talked about it on a, on a pad, podcast previous to this with the way you – where a high fastball works very well with a curveball that comes off of that same plane where both are released from the same general tunnel and one falls off. 
Kuma has a way of doing that using all four quadrants of the strike zone, we'll call it, down and in, down and away, up and in, up and away, and filling in all the boxes in between. And he can do it with virtually any of his pitches. And I feel like along the way, he just makes some stuff up. I mean, he'll, <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll throw some stuff out there, change some arm angles. and you know. But his ability to touch and feel the baseball, to change speeds, to change locations and elevations, it's, it's easy for him. And despite the fact that he's not going to overwhelm you with velocity, he can create almost a look-alike repertoire where the ball disappears at a certain juncture close to home plate and the, sitter, the hitter loses sight of it. And, and I think that's a, that's a real important distinction with him is, is pitch disguise or deception is real big for Kuma. Well, sticking with the pitching side of things, Jerry, we, we talked about the Rule 5 draft, and you, you broke that down nicely. I, I think this is another opportunity to, to talk about uh, what exactly non-tendering is because you have non-tendered since our last conversation a couple of guys, uh, Drew Smiley and Shea Simmons. So before we talk about them specifically, can you explain a little bit what that means? Sure. Uh, the non-tender, effectively anyone who is non-tendered a contract. If we tender a contract to a player, and we'll backtrack, if we tender a contract to Drew Smiley or to Shea Simmons, we have agreed to go through the arbitration process with that player, whoever that is. Each team on December 1st of every year has to make a determination who they will or won't go through the process with. Once you've invested in tendering that player a contract, you're going through the ARB process. If you go through the ARB process, you have to tender that player a contract that is at least 80% of his earnings from the year prior. So. In the case of Drew Smiley, our understanding that, that he was not going to be able to perform for at least much of the 2018 season, most expected that. Drew expected it. We had discussed it you know, at considerable length, both with Drew and his people, and, and it was not a surprise move. And we've left the door open to the potential for Drew to return and, and, uh, and discussed uh, the possibility between the injury and, and the non-tender. But, you know, it's a, the free market is what it is, and we were not comfortable going through the arbitration process with them. But, but there is a, an avenue to which we could, you know, re-engage with mm -hmm. Drew Smiley down the road. Similar with, with Shea Simmons. Uh, Shea was, was with us most of the year last year, uh, carried on the disabled list while he was rehabbing, and he was a first-time arbitration-eligible player. And, and you know, while, while not expected to be as big a salary number as Drew Smiley, there was some concern that, that going into the season we just weren't sure where Shea lined up for us particularly after a couple of our acquisitions and, and the moves that we had made along the way, we felt good enough about where our depth was that our preference was just to non-tender Shea, not go through the process, but leave a door open to go back and re-engage with him, whether on a smaller scale guaranteed major league deal or a, a minor league deal. Uh, the minor league deals are non-guaranteed. And effectively, unless we non-tender him, we can't sign him for any less than 80% of his previous year's earnings. So, you know, it's, it's more a financial move or a business-oriented move than it is suggestive of the fact that we don't appreciate the players. We actually like both players quite sure. a bit. So it's not when a, when a fan sees that you have non-tendered Shea Simmons in this particular case, it's not to say that we're never going to see Shea Simmons in a Mariners uniform again. There's a chance, but some paperwork and some discussions will have to go through for before that happens. Correct. That, that, is, that is when I am sitting in my, in my office again next to said red button <laughs> to, to, to push at DEFCON 9, and I'm peeling my eyeballs out because we're now talking through arbitration <laughs> negotiation rather than the, the fun stuff. 
Hey, Sam Mole is uh, someone that you made a waiver claim from, or for rather, from Pittsburgh, but made his debut last year with Oakland. Can you tell us a little bit about the left-hander? Yeah, Sam is. Uh, Sam comes to us via the the A's, but has he started his career with the Rockies, and he's had an adventurous offseason. Was uh, was designated for assignment and ultimately outrighted by the A's claimed off waivers by the Pirates. We picked him up from the Pirates. So there was a little bit of a sidestep there. And uh, Sam is a, we'll call it a three-pitch pitcher who has had a pretty good history of throwing strikes with a pretty healthy swing and miss rate in addition to a pretty healthy ground ball rate. His uh, fastball is going to be in the 90 to 94 range for for a left-hander. That's firm. Uh, he doesn't really have, for a guy who generates a ton of ground ball action, he doesn't have a lot of natural sink to his ball. It's more of a riding fastball than a sinking fastball. But for some reason, the combination of his riding fastball and what we think is an above-average changeup tend to result in a lot of ground ball contact, which is not at all a bad thing for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sure. know, we'll take that. Uh, he has a third pitch, which is a breaking ball. It's, it's probably the third of the three pitches. And the fact that he is a, a younger guy, he's going to pitch this year at 26. He still has two minor league options left. We feel like he provides some flexibility for us. And we're going to take a crack at turning Sam into a starter. He, really? He was a starting pitcher in, in college and a good one. He was a high draft by the Colorado Rockies. And in order to expedite his, his journey to the big leagues, they put him in the bullpen. And minimally, we view him as a multi-inning bullpen addition for us and we're going to stretch him out as a starter and see if that's a possibility because physically the combination of his fastball and changeup give him a real chance to go through a lineup more than one time this might seem like a naive question uh, but this is a podcast after all when you when you make a waiver claim on a guy like that a, a, an unknown to the organization obviously do you do you talk to him before you put that claim in? I mean, do you find out whether or not he would like to be a starter again? Or is this simply you have the scouts reports and you put the claim in? Put the claim. It's the latter. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, the waiver claim process is about as callous as anything we do. <laughs> <laughs> Truth be told. Uh, you know, it is, it's a series of names that are going over the waiver wire, and there are a variety of different types of waiver that, that happen year in and year out. And in this particular case, it was an outright waiver claim. So we, we by fact, of the, we were the team with the, the worst record of those who claimed uh, Sam Mole, and, and thus we, we, we get his services. And the first time we engaged with Sam was after he was already a Mariner. Same story, same story with Andrew Romine, same story with uh, David Frita, same story with uh, Zach Vincenz, different guys that we've picked up this year. And in, in Sam's case, we had the advantage of Andy McKay having known him pretty well okay. during his time with the Colorado Rockies. And, and, you know, we think a lot of Sam's makeup, the way he's wired and his work habits, that made it pretty easy. And, you know, the rest of it is most players are going to be flexible to whatever gives them a track toward big league success. Sure. And, and if you can create a path for a player and explain to them how that path is going to be, be work for him, they're usually on board. Whatever's going whatever's gonna to get them to the top of the mountain. Sometimes it's hard when you're looking at a mountain and it's just a bunch of trees, and it becomes a little bit easier when you have people standing next to you that, trust me, there's a path in there. We'll, <laughs> sure. we'll find it. You know, I've always wondered, how do general managers find out who's placed on waivers? I mean, is there some backdoor MLB.com the waiver hotline. Slash, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> 1-800-WAVERS. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how do you – there's so many players, obviously. 
How do you find out when a guy's on waivers? You know, every day there is a, a waiver report that comes from the Major League Baseball offices. And, you know, the, the general manager, the assistant general manager, and a variety of different scouting directors are attached to that document uh, that, is th- that is produced every day. We'll get one in the late morning, and then we'll get one in the afternoon. And uh, each of those, it could be a signing, it could be a, an outright waiver, it could be a release waiver, it could be any number of different transaction forms that, uh, that are coming across our desk every day. And when we see a player come through on outright waivers, for example, like Sam Mall, where we know a simple claim and we have a chance to get them, we have to pay a fee. You know, to claim Sam Mall, it costs us $50,000. So we committed $50,000 to seeing what we can do with Sam as a, as a young player in our system. Does that go to Pittsburgh? The, correct. So the, the, the Pirates receive $50,000. Now, in some cases, uh, like for instance, for our, over the last two plus years, we have had so many different waiver claims in and out. Uh, if, if you saw the, the tab start to run through on, on what we actually pay in and out yeah. for some of these waiver claims, it's, it's insane. But it's, I think it's good for the players because what it does is it puts them in a better circumstance than they were in before. If the team before them had an opportunity for them, they wouldn't be on waivers. And the team that's claiming them off waivers clearly sees a better opportunity. And we're trying the best we can to find as much depth as we can. And to me, the waiver wire is where you can find interesting talent that hasn't tapped out on its ability. And and picking up players who have who, with one turn of the screw, you might be able to find that one ingredient that he was lacking. All of them were on major league rosters for a reason. They were all there for a reason. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's emergency, but oftentimes it's because they had the talent. And and if we can find that one little turn of the screw, uh, that it makes it worth reading that report every day to find out who's on there. So is, is there all, ever like a uh, internal race when you see that come into your inbox? If you're trying, w- which team can open up the fastest and put it in the claim? But I, then again, I suppose that it all depends on where you line up in the waiver claim process, right? Yeah, it's all on a time. You know, it's it's all on a clock. So each player goes through the waiver process, and they're going to stay out there for forty-eight or seventy-two okay. hours, depending on which type of waiver it is. And, you know, each team will submit their claim. Most teams wait. So let's say the first one happens at at 10 a.m. in Seattle, which is to say that they happen at 10 a.m. in Seattle. (laughs) We we will wait until 9.50 to put our our claim in because we want to make sure that nothing else happened on our roster up until that point to take away the flexibility that comes with – because once we claim Sam Mole, he is occupying one of our roster spots. So we have to be conscious of what is happening in and around our team on that day. You know, could we be in, in line for a seven-for-one crazy trade that came down the pike at, at 9.49? Right. We, we have to be aware of what we're doing before we do it. And most teams will do that. So the last 10 minutes before the actual waiver goes through, the people at the Labor Relations Department at MLB are, are all hands on deck waiting to see what happens. And how do you put in a claim? Is it just reply all? <laughs> yeah. Now I built up all this drama, and you know what we do? We just hit a button on a computer. That's uh, it. That's yeah. all it is. Mariners, yes. Yeah. Okay. Nice. <laughs> That's, it, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, but not much. We like to end the podcast sometimes, uh, time permitting, uh, nerding out a little bit. And we did that um, recently on effective velocity. And, Jerry, we, we ran out of time. There's, there's some, some DePoto follow-up on this. Do I understand this correctly? Yeah. You know, I, I, I know from the past couple of podcasts it had re- raised a couple of questions and, and that have been 
published that I think are really great work. I love the fact that others will nerd out with me. Uh, <laughs> so I know I'm not flying alone, yeah, brother. Absolutely, We're not man. flying There's alone. There's plenty of us out there. And, you know, one of the things that I thought got lost in the weeds a little bit, when we talk about fastball qualities, whether it's TrackMan or StatCast, whether it's – it all boils down to the quality of the fastball, and I think it it's best described as effective velocity. What we are trying to do and, – and these are the, the theories of Perry Husband that are multiple decades old now. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to find pitchers – who create a perception at home plate that their fastball is traveling in a different way than it actually is. Whether that is amplified velocity, you know, effective velocity, the theories of Perry Husband will suggest that a fastball elevated as it's traveling sometimes five and six miles an hour harder in the eyes of the hitter than it actually is thrown by the pitcher. So a 91 mile an hour elevated fastball, especially elevated on the inner half, sometimes plays more like a 97-mile-an-hour fastball. And, and that's real. That is what we're talking about in, in episodes past when we've talked about the fastballs of when James Paxton elevates his fastball, when Nick Rumbelow elevates his heater. There's, it is not all about just one simple component. We are laying in multiple elements of a fastball to determine how that fastball plays. And it, it could be StatCast, it could be TrackMan, it could be the way we see the effective velocity, but we're wrapping it all into what we deem fastball quality. And we may we may look at a guy with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, Thiago Vieira, and we may look at a guy with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball, Nick Vincent, and determine that Nick Vincent's fastball quality is significantly ahead of Thiago Vieira's which may or may not be true, but those are, that's, we're weighing all the different elements of that fastball rather than just one. The fastball doesn't come down to who throws it the hardest. It's, it's some combination of velocity, movement, and location. And it brings to mind, I, I, I will say this, that my favorite player of all time is Tom Seaver. A uh, little offshoot. We can all <laughs> shed a tear podcast, now. Yeah, but... we can all shed a tear. Uh, <laughs> uh, I will tell stories all day long about Tom Seaver, who was my baseball uh, hero. Uh, among many in the 70s that stood out, the 80s, 70s, 80s, Tom was uh, awesome. And my son actually carries his middle name, Seaver. And in, in this case, Tom wrote a book called The Art of Pitching. Uh, that is, it's truly a great read if you get the opportunity. But in that book, you know, he talked about the, the fastball being about the pitcher's ability, but specifically the fastball being about velocity, movement and location you know and you know he had a preference as to which of those three he'd have if he could only have one but at the end of the day those are the general three buckets that we're breaking a fastball into and the sum of those three parts creates fastball quality and if you can nail all three of those with deception which as we talked about earlier if you can deceive the hitter in the way that Hasashi Uakuma has or can and throw an 87 or an 88 mile an hour fastball that looks more like 93 or 94 and then disguise it with the secondary pitches so that it all looks the same that's how you get the best hitters in the world out it's a combination of those events not any one thing and I think sometimes in the world of analytics we get so hung up on one thing that we forget to look at the bigger picture and and just take a step back a more 10,000 foot view of a fastball instead of one component it made me think of Nathan Avaldi, a guy who's just blowing absolute gas and just getting ripped all over the yard. And now his what second Tommy John, but I mean it's it's true. I mean if he, we've seen and you know even a couple of years ago when Paxton came back 
his first uh, start in San Diego. He's blowing 100 up there and just getting roped all over the yard. It's ama- I mean, it's incredible that for even as many power arms as there are, if you're just doing one thing and one thing only, that's not going to be enough. It truly isn't. You just described my career in a nutshell. <laughs> Blowing 100 <laughs> miles an hour. Yeah, you know, give or take. <laughs> 190, who's counting? Uh, you know, we, we, have, we have tried to take a bigger picture view of the fastball. And we have seen over and over some of the hardest throwers in, in baseball history have not been particularly successful at the big league level because either their ball is too visible, the hitter picks it up too quickly, there's a lack of movement associated with the pitch, or their ability to locate it is, is not advanced enough. You know, and, but it never comes down to just velocity. And to the, to the, the lay person or the, you know, the inexperienced scout at the lowest levels of, of the game, if they're out there and they're holding a radar gun and that radar gun is telling you it's 97, I talked earlier about the red balloons in a black right. and white film. That is the ultimate red balloon. When you see guys blowing 97 and 99 miles an hour, you want so badly to turn them into stars because there aren't many people. You know, I've, I've often said this, Aaron, and I'll share it with you. There aren't many of us who can throw a ball that hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and clearly I, I am not one of them either. But, you know, we, we've talked about it in that, in that regard that there just aren't very many human beings that can throw a ball that hard. We want to be able to take whatever clay is there, malleable as it may be, and turn it into a complete pitcher. But it's really hard to do. It's a hard thing we're asking them to do is to, to, to take all of those elements and create one effective pitch so to speak. And uh, some guys just can't do it. Some of the hardest throwers, we we had a guy when I was coming through, uh, I was with the Rockies, as you know, for a number of years. And we had a young man uh, pitching for us in the minor leagues. He was in rookie ball at the time, Juan Murillo. Juan Murillo threw the hardest fastball I've ever seen a human being throw. He threw a a ball that registered on my radar gun at 104 miles an hour. What? Yeah, 104. And I have not been present when I've Aroldis Chapman. Yeah. I've seen velocities there or higher, but I've never seen it. Juan Mario, I'm sitting there watching him pitch, and he throws 104 miles an hour. And and you know, it wasn't a terribly successful career journey for him, despite the fact that he had one of the most gifted arms you're ever going to see. And uh, what it always did was it bought him a second chance. It bought him an opportunity to go to the next team to see if they could rework the clay. But, you know, he was as athletic as you want a guy to be, had a smooth, easy arm action, and it was almost like watching a metronome. You know, you knew when the dial was coming back the other way, and you just had to time it. And the hitters we're dealing with, we've talked a lot in these first three episodes about pitchers and the the way we separate the pitches. The hitters on the other end are the best hitters in the world. And you could literally shoot it out of a cannon at them, and they will figure out how to time it. And, you know, it's uh, you've got to have something a little more that you're bringing to the table in the big leagues than just steam. So without giving away your your in-house recipe. Didn't I just do that? (laughs) (laughs) How how do you guys come up with – Forgive me for forgetting your exact uh, phrasing, phraseology of it, but how do you guys come up with this recipe of the quality of a fastball and all the all the data that goes into determining that this one is better than that one and pretend not to pay attention fully to what the velocities are saying? Now, you and I both share an affinity for the culinary arts. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's magic. It's pure magic. <laughs> We have internally created a recipe that we think best encompasses all of the elements of a fastball, and we rope it into what we think is one number, which we call fastball quality. And we will then qualify through gathering all these samples from literally thousands of pitchers around the world at any moment in time. What we'll do is just a simple bell curve. 
when do we get to the point where we are dealing with an above average number? And, and when are we starting to tip down the other way to something that maybe can't be sustained? Because there, at, at, a certain, at a certain point, unless you're Nolan Ryan, I, there, is no, there are no pitchers who are able to sustain that type of fastball quality and velocity for that long. You're dealing with the very the, the, the top 1% of 1%, the Ryans, the Verlanders. It is just such a short list of guys. And uh, so we're, what we're looking to do is tap into the guys that are at the top of that, that, that curve. And once we see, we'll separate them just like you would a stoplight, you know, green, black, and red. We're, we're, we're good with the black. We, we salivate over the green. Right. And when we get to the red, <laughs> We're going to place else. Yeah, the, trade them. Trade, <laughs> trade. Very interesting. Okay, well, I think I think that is that was a nice secondary part to a previous podcast. And to and a question I had for you earlier: perceived velocity is different to a degree. I, you know, effective velocity is just the, it's the the way the ball plays at elevation. It is it's creating a different look in the eye of the hitter, and so it's. It, it, how much, and I'm not smart enough to be able to tell you the exact difference between effective and perceived, but perceived has more to do with the, the location to the body, as I understand it. So the perceived velocity is more throwing the ball in, and, it, and it's stressing you throw the ball in, and the, the, the fastball away that is painted on the outside corner, if you take that same pitch and move it to the other side of the plate where you're crowding the hitter, the 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 effect to the hitter is that it's plus three miles an hour. So in theory, if you're throwing an average 92-ish mile an hour major league fastball down and away, you throw it on the other side of the plate, it plays like it's 95. You know, and, and all things being equal, if, if I have good movement, if I have good location and I can move it over this way and get an extra three miles an hour, we'll call it a yard. You know, If I get an extra yard of velocity sure. burst, the hitter now can't react because in his mind, he's, he's still looking at a 92-mile-an-hour pitch away, 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 and then you suddenly come in on him at the same velocity, but it, it appears you know, three miles an hour harder, which for me, that three miles an hour, and we'll talk about upsetting hitters' timing. Hitters, you throw a 91-mile-an-hour fastball, you throw a 93-mile-an-hour fastball at the major league level, it's all the same. It, it quacks like a duck, it walks like a duck, <laughs> it's just a duck. You know, you throw you throw a 91 mile an hour fastball that it, that has movement, mm-hmm. and a 96 miles an hour fastball that is straight as a string. Guess which one the, the major league hitter wants to hit? They want the 96 because it's straight. That they can time it easier. So we're looking at all the individual components. Now, if you can throw that same 91 mile an hour sinking fastball and hug a player's body and effectively turn it into a 94 mile an hour sinking fastball, now you've found that is the magic potion. Sure. If you can do those things and, and incorporate all those elements, you turn into one of the best pitchers in the world, which is a very lucrative gig. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely it is. Um, my, Jerry, have you subscribed to the podcast yet? Have you done that? I have not. I don't think it's no. egotistical to do that, by the way. I think uh, you're, you're well within yeah. your own rights to do that. I, th- I mean, I'm sure Colin – I think Colin's bonus relies on how many subscribers we get. So if you want to do him a solid. Yeah, I, I mean, I listen to myself every day. And, <laughs> so and, you want uh, no part of this? Know, sometimes it's in the shower. Other times it's as I'm talking to myself after doing something generally stupid. And, uh, you know, and oftentimes it's while I'm talking to, uh, to our staff here at the, the ballpark, asking them to talk me off the ledge of the, 
you know, the next crazy idea. But at, at the end of the day, I, I really enjoy doing it. I love talking about the game. I love talking about what we're doing. And, and I like having fun while we're doing it because it's uh, we we work for a living, though it, it's hard for me to, to wake up in the morning and think I'm going to work. It's uh, This is an awesome job. And uh, it, it's good work if you can get it. Let's let's leave it at that. There's not many of these jobs available. Well, uh, hey, for our next episode, we will be uh, fielding some fan questions, and the podcast has its own email address, thewheelhouse at mariners.com. So now we're big. Now we're big. It's officially big time. Uh, so we look forward to uh, hearing from you guys, uh, thewheelhouse at mariners.com. Also, uh, Mariners single-game tickets are on sale now. Of course, Mariners.com or any Mariners team store. Jerry, this has been fun. Thanks, man. Always fun. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.